it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Ladies and gentlemen, am I totally screwed or what? Hello there, you're listening to One Sensational Shot. This is the Evening Glass podcast uh, with Luke Boy and Fletcher Walton, our first podcast of 2018. Happy New Year, everyone, and thank you for tuning in and giving us a listen. Uh, 2017, of course, was a funny year because I seem to remember 2016 being the year that everyone wanted to forget. It was the year that... Uh, <laughs> that killed all of our favourite pop stars. Uh, it was the year of uh, Brexits. It was the year of Donald Trump's. Uh, it was a year that people just wanted rid of very, very swiftly. 2017 couldn't come soon enough. And then I think 2017 was equally dire for most yeah. people. I don't really understand. Uh, but no, everyone was very polite about it, I thought. Today we are going to make a broad attempt, uh, although I, I mean that very loosely, to give our review of 2017 in film. I thought I'd just kick off with some of my notable uh, picks of the year. Should I say honourable mentions? That sounds like a terrible thing to say, but uh, just a few films that weren't quite in my absolute favourites. Although having, again, looking at my list here, I'm not sure if I even agree with what I put uh, wrote down last week. But nevertheless, uh, at the time of writing, one week ago, my notable, uh, uh, notable films or noteworthy films that didn't quite make the top cut for me personally, uh, were as follows. Jackie, the biopic of uh, Jackie Kennedy starring Natalie Portman, which if you remember was right at the beginning of uh, the year and uh, in 2017, so that was awards season fodder. Also Baby Driver, which we touched upon uh, extensively. And also one that I don't think you saw, Fletch. Did you see War for the Planet of the Apes? No. So that was the Matt Reeve picture uh, from this summer. And... Uh, I, I appreciate you didn't see it, Fletch, but I have to say, this whole Apes trilogy, uh, for want of a better way of putting it, is 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 one of my favourite sci-fi trilogies now, I, I think, of all time. I think it's absolutely fantastic. If you remember, it all kicked off a few years ago in, was it 2013, 2014, with Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, and then uh, we had the follow-up where... Uh, what's quite interesting is that, is that with the, the first movie, there was lots of humans in the movie. Uh, and the second movie had slightly less humans in the movie. By the third film, War for the Planet of the Apes, War for the Planet of the Apes, I need to really try and pronounce that. It was basically Andy Serkis and his motion capture gang. Uh, the humans' supporting role, if that... We have Woody Harrelson as a kind of General Kurtz figure, is the antagonist of the apes. But mostly we've got CG uh, motion capture apes leading this whole film. And I really believed it was happening in front of me. And uh, very, very rarely have I ever felt that way with any kind of CG effect in the past decade or so. And uh, it really was the icing on the cake, this final part of the trilogy. It really does, uh, uh, along with Kong Skull Island, which I know you saw this year, I, I missed. It's another film that has a lot of Vietnam analogy and, and, and that kind of thing going on. Um, but it really does bring this trilogy to a wonderful close. And when you're fine at the end of it, there's a lovely poignant moment where you realise... Because throughout the production of this, I never really felt it was going to be a prequel to the original Planet of the Apes film with Charlton Heston. But uh, as it turned out, 
I think it kind of is. It, it gives a real solid nod at the end to this could potentially actually be the same universe. Um, because as the films were going going on, I, I kind of felt like there was probably a timeline split of some description. They were in two separate universes. They weren't really connected. But yeah, by the time by the, by the end of this film, there's a wonderful poignant moment at the end where you realise, aha, maybe maybe this is all connected. And in much the same way, the original Apes films or the, and their sequels kind of went in a big time loop, like a big circle. Uh, the, the narrative kind of works from the beginning of the Charlton Heston film, and then thanks to some time travel and, and other things, you kind of, when you end the Planet of the Apes movies, it kind of all ties up in a big loop. This kind of, in, in its own way, does a, does a similar kind of thing. Not, not in a literal sense, but um, this, this certainly does feel like uh, it, it's it's a bit of a prequel to those original Charlton Heston films. So anyway, War for the Planet of the Apes, uh, really, really enjoyed that, along with uh, Baby Driver and Jackie. And um, I know that Jackie is, uh, in fact, all three of those are on home video now, so no reason why you couldn't check them out, and I'm sure they're going to be streaming uh, very very soon so those are my kind of uh, honourable mentions I made a few lists one of which is a list of films that I can't wait to see again Jackie mm-hmm. is among them in terms of impact at the cinema in 2017 few films connected with me and left imprints of particular shots scenes and uh, score and had that level of emotional impact as Jackie Mm. I don't know how good a film it is, but it's made me add Pablo Lorraine, the director, to my mental list of Helmers who I will rush out to see. And I don't know him really at all. He's he's Chilean, isn't he? And he's basically, basically he's got, he's had a career, but it's a load of films that I've never, ever seen. That's one reason why it's very helpful when foreign language directors do make a foray into English language. Because with the best will in the world, we can't all get involved with, say, Quaron uh, at Itumamatambien mm. or um, Iñárritu with the very first films that he made in Spanish language. And so when there's just a dip into English, it for, you know, for a wider audience, it then compels you, uh, well, certainly compels me, and I think you're the same. So now I want to check out, no, the one that he did a few years ago, with um, Gael Garcia Bernal. And uh, there was another one just recently as well. Neruda is another one with Gael Garcia Bernal. But those are, are both Spanish, Spanish language. So I, I can't speak to its... And this is the thing about doing a review of the year. All of well, these yeah, films we've it, it seen was only so, once. So long ago as well. It really yeah. was the beginning. I was going through my ticket stubs, and Jackie was. I think one of. The, I think I saw Manchester by the Sea was the first film I saw. I think Jackie was possibly the the second film I saw in 2017. But it is fantastic, and um, we can you can go back, listen to our uh, kind of review of it and analysis of it at the time as well. But uh, what was really powerful for me was, uh, I mean, the Natalie Natalie Portman put in one hell of a performance she nailed uh just the 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 speech patterns the tones the voice uh, of jackie kennedy uh but it really is this wonderful sort of character study of not only a a woman in mourning but a country in mourning and she's there's all sorts of things going on about she's kind of the mother of the country and people are looking to her for strength in in america and of course she um you know but she she's got trying to hold her family together because she's just been holding her dead husband you know in a, you know not, not days before in in the back of a of a car you know for for all the world to see it's one hell of a uh, film and i i mean i don't maybe we shouldn't do too anything too spoilery i guess people can still see it you know stream it or see it on home video whatever they want to do but there's a 
wonderful moment toward the end with um because of course um jfk's uh white house was referred to as, as camelot wasn't it and at, at, at the time and historically and there's um that they play very much on that throughout there's, there's a moment where i won't go into too much detail where she's dancing uh jackie's dancing along to a record and it, it's really really powerful and you mentioned the music as well uh i remember the score being particularly good uh, and it very very experimental pop music score by um, and I, I'm not familiar with her at all. But is it Mika Levy? Uh, she's like yeah. a, a, a English um, English singer and, uh, and 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 been in groups and releasing records on Rough Trade that kind of thing. But the the, the score is phenomenal. Uh, so so yeah, Jackie's a really good shout. I put it in my honourable mentions. But the more we're talking about it, the more you're getting me fired up. The more I think, yeah, you know what? That's, Actually, yeah. that was great. That's what I mean. Sometimes the most interesting films aren't the films which you can immediately identify as brilliant. Mm. So there's there's a few there. Um, and I'll mention another, The Lost City of Zed, which we talked about eight months ago on the podcast in some detail. Can't wait to see that one again. Its critical response was mixed. Twos and threes. Very few people came out in favour of it like I did. Mm. And I'd, I'm desperate to see that film again to see if I did see something or if I thought I saw something, kind of. Yeah. Because yeah. that's that's a good example of a film, and I think it's shot by Darius Konji, where the the lushness of the jungle and the perfection of the cinematography at the cinema can can be enough for you as an emotional experience of cinema going. Mm. Transplant that to watching it on television at home and maybe there isn't enough because I think when you're out, out of a cinema you're much more you're probably on a smaller screen looking for dialogue and performances and a plot that will grab you mm. and you, you you no longer will just be wowed by the pure image I suppose mm. but yeah uh, Lost City of Zed and Jackie are two that I'm very excited to see again. And Chirac as well, which is in my top ten, but Chirac by Spike Lee and Dunkirk by Nolan, just to check out exactly how good it is. And then there's a few that I need to see again. Uh, it comes at night. I didn't get it at all. It didn't connect with me. That's a horror. Yeah, I didn't uh, see it. I didn't see it at all. You'll have to enlighten me. Yeah, uh, Joel Edgerton, Christopher Abbott, who was mm-hmm. in Girls until he fell out with Lena Dunham four and five star reviews but for me it was a horror without any horror it's one thing well it's uh it's definitely in that modern pantheon of horror films that number one feel like they're too good to be horror Mm. that horror's beneath them and i like it follows but it follows is there and the babadook as well both of those are excellent films but both of them feel like they're shot by directors who wouldn't want them classified as horror films. Mm-hmm. Which, to an extent, if you speak with John Carpenter, I think he'd be happy for people to say that the thing was a suspense horror film. Yeah, sure. There's nothing wrong with the horror tags, nothing wrong with the horror genre. A lot of good work is done there. Especially by, you know, if, you, if you're a first-time director, if, and this is exactly what Sam Raimi did, he, doesn't, he has a, an affinity with horror, but it hasn't been his entire career like Toby Hooper. But to get into cinema... One of the most effective ways, one of the ways to get the most bang for your buck is to direct a low-budget horror. Paranormal Activity, we've talked about them a little bit. It's outrageous. I mean, they're costing a couple of mil. Add the advertising revenue, uh, and that's maybe up to three or four mil. It takes 250 mil. And 
there you go, you're a bankable director. You do one or two of those and doors open for you. And I, I don't turn my nose up to that. But it comes at night, and I'm, I'm afraid I don't remember the name of the director, but it, yes, it was atmospheric, but nothing happened. I remember speaking with Neil Byrne. If you're writing a horror, there has to be something. There eventually has to be an entity, whether it's human or otherwise, but there must be a baddie or a monster. Atmosphere only goes so far. Eventually, there mu- you must fight against something. I mean, because, for instance, in a, a picture like John Carpenter's The Thing, it's suspicion and paranoia, yeah, which yeah. is the baddie. That, that's one of the baddies, and like in Invasion of the Body Snatchers as well. Paranoia, you know, and in all zombie films, the real threat is man. However, there yeah. are zombies. However, there <laughs> is the thing. Yeah, there yeah, are yeah. still things that keep them in these rooms and stop them from leaving. Sure. Uh, so it comes. Uh, to yeah, uh, the, the Babadook as well as example where I suppose it's the real. The real problem is psychological, but there is yeah. a, there is a baddie that looks a bit like a scary man with a top hat. <laughs> and it was the, the Babadook. I think was excellently executed. I have. I only saw it at the cinema. You know, my snapshot would be five out of five. Fantastic. I loved uh, like a uh, sci-fi. Uh, horror works particularly well when it's detailing a, a metaphor, a kind of a parable. I like that. It's the same with It Follows. But where it falls short, I think we get a film like It Comes at Night. Um, the Big Sick, didn't really get that. Oh, I, en- I enjoyed The Big Sick. What, 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 what do you mean you didn't get it? What, what didn't you get about, uh, about well, the, it? Or nothing at all? It received critical raves. And as I talked about, it's on our podcast when we discussed it and Dunkirk. We only gave about 15 minutes to the big sick, mm-hmm. but none of it was revelatory to me. And I think I may have just reached saturation point with the Judd Apatow uh, well, I remember you saying stable. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's only so much inside stand-up comedy that I can handle at the moment. The But did you framing... not find the a- angle of arranged marriage and, and all that kind of thing. Did you not find the, the, the sort of the cultural angle, the, the cultural differences of these two characters? I mean, that was that was interesting, was it not? Or, or maybe maybe not? It was okay, but it didn't sate me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked on the podcast before about how, a, I think for a British audience, a film about Pakistani culture is hardly going to be as enlightening as it is for an American audience. Just because all of us have have worked with Pakistan, uh, people of Pakistani descent and have Pakistani friends. And in Britain, we've... I mean, how many of us go out and essentially eat that food and interact with that culture on an almost weekly basis? Mm. Anybody who's into cricket... Now, and, and that's the thing, that a lot of the stuff in... if As a kind of um, culture clash comedy like My Big Fat Greek Wedding... Yeah, yeah. The Big Sick is, <laughs> the big sick is novel... Sure. In that, uh, if you don't know about Pakistani stuff, then yeah, a bloke explaining cricket, and I can see it's cute, seeing that's fun, but but if you know all about a situation before going in, uh, occasionally you'll get a, a, a Jewish rom com like Susie Gold is one of them. There was one called oh I don't remember the name of it, but it was like partying with the Freedmans or uh, at home with the Goldbergs, something like that. And yeah, uh, but you, you know the kind of thing where. Uh, there's a Jewish matriarch and a Jewish grandfather sure. and somebody's inducted into it. We talked about this when we were um, going through Annie Hall. Gangster films are usually centred around Italian-Americans. We know what that's about. You know, if you make one now and you've got the spaghetti 
funny nicknames. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, restaurants as fronts for criminal enterprise. None sure. of that is particularly new to us. And so I suppose that's kind of how I felt with The Big Sick. But that's why I want to see it again, because I may have been a little bit harsh. The other thing is I thought it was quite a lot like While We Were Sleeping. I know it's been 20-odd years. Okay, I haven't seen that. that. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman, Peter yeah, Gallagher. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. once again, it's a film in which Sandra Bullock inveigles herself into the family of Peter Gallagher uh, while he suffers in a coma and meets... The, the wacky parents and the wacky grandparents. It's kind of similar. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to be glib. No, no, no. I, I, I think there are comparisons. I think a lot of people liked it because it's very autobiographical, isn't it? It's written by um, Kamal uh, Nananji and it's it's based on the, his, his real life relationship with his now wife and how they yeah. got together. It is autobiographical. Yeah. Uh, Holly Hunter and Ray Mar- Romano, what a pairing and uh, two yeah, people that yeah. I wasn't necessarily expecting to see on film together. And uh, like Ray Romano, I, I don't have a lot of love for in, in the world. Everyone loves Raymond is one of my least favorite things about the television just ever. And it seems mm. to be repeated endlessly. But Holly yeah. Hunter and Ray Romano were fantastic. I really liked them as the parents. Yeah, and, they were really good. If yeah. we were going for, if you were, uh, yes, let's say that you've asked me, to, to pick out performances from otherwise moribund pictures. Okay, I would go right. for that pairing, certainly, yeah. But that's why I want to see it again, because I got 100 minutes, 110 minutes with that film. I thought about it for a week. I need to see it again. I need to properly formulate my response to it. And it's the same with Loving, which I liked a lot, by Jeff Nichols. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can also, coming out of the film and thinking about it for a week, I can also see... I could also understand the point of view of an audience that didn't connect with it. Uh, mm. Other films that I'm desperate to see again, Free Fire, because... Yes, that was a wonderful that, yeah, film. It was, it was good, but I wanted more. I, went, I had high hopes, admittedly. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen High Rise four or five times now, and it's only been about 18 months since its release. There's more meat, Ri- meat, meat on the bone with High Rise. It's, True, there's more, yeah, more, more yeah. depth to it. Free Fire is... I mean, the way Free Fire was described was... Uh, the final act of Reservoir Dogs, but it's the whole film. I don't think I don't think that's yeah. entirely fair, but it, it's uh, it certainly um, gives you a sense of it. Really is it's free fire. It's it's a shootout yeah. for, for for that length of time. There's lots to there's lots to like about it. I don't know if there's lots to love about it. There's lots to like, and as a filmmaking exercise, as you say, to for for Wheatley and Jump to identify the shootout. Let's just do that. So with Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead, he took the Old West Showdown. Mano a mano, made an entire film out of that. What if the whole film is just gunfights? Mm. And it, it kind of the same with Free Fire. They're locked in there for a hundred or so minutes. And I liked it, but coming off High Rise, I th- a film which I think High Rise is already among the best of the decade, maybe the best of the century. I've watched it so closely. It's sorry to talk about a 2016 film in our no, 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 2017. That's fine. That's fine. But, um, what Wheatley and Jump did with High Rise was apply the discipline of Wright and Peg and their writing and put it into a dramatic milieu. So with Wright and Peg, almost every line adds to character or accelerates the plot or is either a callback to something or foreshadows something that's coming in 10 minutes. And High Rise is perfect in that. I mean... It, it, in its modest ambitions, it's, I think it might be a perfect film, which can rarely be said. Uh, and I don't want to... I'm not going to try and argue other perfect films. Gross Point Blank is the same. There you go. There's another example of 
what I would say is a, a perfect film. It may not be among the hundred best films ever made, but within its scope, what it was setting out to do, and line by line, scene by scene, take apart gross point blank, nothing spare there, and I feel the same about High Rise. Mm. So off of that, I suppose Free Fire was always unlikely to score a hat trick again. You sure, know? sure, 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 sure. But uh, yeah, I, I'm eager to see that, to see how I feel about that. It was still one of my favourite films of the year. You know, it's in the top 20 or so. And it's it's in uh, the three films of the year to have a John Denver song in there for mm. Country Roads. Yeah. Country Roads, uh, along with it was Alien in, yeah. Covenant and Logan Lucky's. <laughs> Blade Runner is the last of the films that I've put in my short list of films that I need to see again for my own benefit. To yeah, get it didn't do it for you. And I, I, I honestly think that Blade Runner 2049 can be put firmly in the category of films, Fletch, for you in 2017, that you were probably just a bit hungry or tired when you were watching it because I was absolutely <laughs> floored. I thought it was a great film. I thought it had a lot to say uh, about you know, the human condition or the lack thereof. Uh, I was I was mesmerised by it from beginning to end. Did not feel like a three-hour picture. I, I thought that was a, a fantastic movie and lived up very, very firmly to the original Blade Runner. Or should I say the, the final cut, which is the only... Yeah, talking of perfect yeah. films is probably the only Blade Runner I, I would watch. But yeah, the, what, what a shame that you, you, you've got to go back and re-watch but, and devour it again. But hey, maybe you'll see something in there that maybe you missed the first time or you were distracted or I don't know what it could be. I've thought a lot about its themes. Mm-hmm. In particular, uh, I found that if given a point of view, I was quickly able to argue against that. So I definitely engaged with the film. So, for instance, a couple of articles said that the film either was either misogynist or promoted violence against women. I think that's nonsense. Yes, the original Blade Runner did have its problems with female representation, but I think that... It was the were... 80s. It was a different time. Yeah. <laughs> not for James Cameron, though, and we'll come back to that another time, but not for James Cameron. Um, but I think that Blade Runner 2049, not overcorrected, but absolutely corrected any problems that, if we're to call it a franchise, had with females and female representation. If you go through that film, the characters with most agency and those with most humanity are all the female characters. Um, So the, I can't remember her character's name, but the Terminatrix, Mm. the depiction of which I didn't really go for, she outright says, I'm the best. Mm-hmm. doesn't she while mm-hmm. she's she's either she's beaten beaten up gosling or faldy and says i'm the best one and she <laughs> is she's the apogee of jared leto's creations robin wright was in a position of some power in that film and so was the rebel le- the rebel leader was a lady yes and and yet we got think pieces about how ryan gosling's girlfriend had no agency She's a program. She's an app. She's not. She's, th- and that was the whole point of the film. Or, or, or one, yeah. one of the points. That was the theme. That she was uh, an app or a program. Uh, she, But she seems to sincerely love Ryan Gosling. And he seems convinced of that. And yeah. then, and then there's different ways you can interpret, of course. You know, the iconic... And I'm, I, it is iconic. The iconic scene where uh, 
later on in the movie sees his girlfriend, of course, an advertisement for the app, an advertisement for his girlfriend. She's giant and huge. She comes down and uh, you know talks to him, saying, uh, "Hey, hey there, big boy. You know, you could uh, you could have something like me or whatever." Just trying to advertise yeah. the app, and of course, you're then thinking, "Uh huh." So, does his app girlfriend at home really love him? Is she? Is she just programmed to say that? But the it's a pivotal moment in in the, in the scene where uh, sorry in the, in the movie where I, I think that he realizes he realizes what he then has to do and he has to go and he has to go and help the people and save the people even even though he's then yeah. not special by that point he's convinced that you know he's convinced that as as machines as apps they still have a part to play in this and and they still have humanity there's there's yeah. tremendous amount going on in there but like you're right in terms of your original point she's not supposed to be a female character in the film she's um she's a not human character in the same yeah. way spoiler alert Ryan Gosling is a not human character yeah. Yeah. so uh, it's about humanity i i don't know i think a lot of people uh, get paid to write an awful lot of words and you, you do realize as well that you know this is just part of the problem online a little bit these days is uh it's all about just uh, getting your content on there and what's going to generate the clicks, yeah. what's going to generate yeah. the social shares. Let's let's pretend that this piece of pop culture asserted this view. Now write a thousand words. It's undergraduate Can, it, <laughs> undergraduate yeah. uh, essay writing 101. And almost so, every, so. The audience is better able to empathise with almost every female character in the film than any of the male characters. I also noted, and this is the thing, this is why I need to reevaluate it, because, yeah, it didn't hit me at the cinema. I thought a lot about it, though. I came out and I thought about it for weeks. And I thought that that film posits that uh, reproduction is a miracle. Mm. And, and the, only women can reproduce. Jared Leto's character is trying. Mm. The only He is obsessed with mirroring female reproduction. That's his preoccupation through the entire film. So the one th- there's one thing he cannot have, and that's to be, to reproduce in the way that a female can. That's privileging female attributes. Yeah. The whole film is about the importance of reproduction, the miracle of reproduction, that only women can do that. The plot is driven by... So the plot is driven by Sean Young and her daughter, who's mm. stuck in that hyperbaric chamber. It's so... It, the film is, if anything, it's um, gynocentric in an interesting and good way. And moreover, the whole world has fallen to shit. People have said that's a world run by men. Well, the world's in ruins. Mm. You know? Clearly, the world is not having a terrific time. This uh, future this future dystopia in which um, advertising is overly sexualised and men seem to be everywhere and women are reduced to erotic playthings... Who's having a good time there? No one. <laughs> Certainly, it's least of all me. I had a miserable time watching that film. I just thought, good lord, if as as you know, as long as this is twenty forty nine, at least I can die before then. If it's twenty twenty nine, this is terrible. You know, maybe I won't be here in. Well, no, that's only thirty two years away. I do hope to be around. Can we get off world? We'll be doing the podcast from Alpha Centauri or something because we can't stick around. Yeah. If it's going to be that miserable, that dire. In moving away there, we began to talk about all of the films that I need to see once again, and I'm sure those are the films, mm. the, the films which actually produce contention. Mm. Those are the films we'll probably be talking about all through 2017. And some of my favourite films, like, for instance, Manchester by the Sea, outstanding. Mm. To an extent, you can kind of move that away. You know that's brilliant. 
so you don't have yeah. to think about it so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, I do know exactly what you mean. Manchester by the Sea is one that I'm going to rewatch uh, as soon as it's streaming. It's on the TV uh, because I haven't seen it since the movies. So that that one certainly deserves a rewatch. In terms of my films of the year, my favourites, but uh, the one that was throughout the whole year was my f- absolute favourite film until right at the end when it got pipped to the post uh, <laughs> was. Was Get Out. Blumhouse Productions, of course. Uh, you touched on uh, Paranormal Activity and all of the, uh, all of those films, the Purge films. Blumhouse Productions is the indie kind of horror uh, studio that's behind all of that. Get Out, I think, is maybe the jewel in their crown. What a, what a film that was. And, uh, of course, I'm, I'm sure most people listening to the podcast by this point have, 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 um, have, uh, have seen it. But it goes... Uh, it's, it's essentially a kind of rosemary's baby kind of look at things where something's not quite right we're introduced to our characters at the beginning they're set up and it's not quite right we have a black guy who's going out with a white girl he's going to meet her pretty privileged white family he 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 knows that he's going to feel a little bit uncomfortable they're overly friendly they're they're heart on their sleeve liberals very very friendly very keen to point out how not racist they are and uh he, Which he, is always what you look for in people that are definitely not racist, isn't it? To announce it in that way. And a little bit like in um, in Ted, they're high on cocaine at the party with Sam J. Jones from Flash Gordon. Before they meet him, yes. they're uh, conversing about the restaurant they're going to own. They yeah. say, and it's not restricted. What? Jews are welcome. Yeah, why not? Well, why wouldn't they be? Well, why even mention it? Well, I don't know. You were the one that mentioned it. So yeah. go on. I, yeah, I really yeah, liked yeah. it as well, and I'm glad you've mentioned it because... Eight months ago, ten months ago, you saw it well before me, and we—I ne- think we never got to talk about it. Yeah, uh, did so we let's not? fill our get-out boots. Okay, so yeah, absolutely, and uh, yeah, so something, something's not quite right, and uh, and clearly, uh, I'm just trying to think because if I go go on any more about the plot, I really have given away the entire uh, theme of the film. But en- anyway, my point is, what I quite like about it is that it's it is a social commentary on uh on where we're at today in terms of race relations of course race is something that looms very large uh in the uk and the rest of the world but uh, so race relations in america are always very front of mind and uh, get out um talks about that and l- like i've often said on the podcast before uh i love it in the way that old sci-fi from the 50s and 60s sort of doesn't hold a microscope microscope up for society it has a telescope so it's dealing with big broad brushstrokes and really big themes of, of racism but um but yeah it's it's not like a, a film that will necessarily have you jumping out of your skin or anything like that but uh it doesn't really play for those kind of cheap laughs it's more of a social commentary and i, I believe that the director jordan peele has even uh mentioned it as a or d- described it as a documentary rather than a horror film <laughs> I, I would i would say that it's definitely in the horror film uh camp but uh but anyway get out was definitely my my pick of the year um not my favorite film of the year but a horror film that definitely does um deal in jumps and cheap maybe on the cheaper side of scares is it uh, call it a remake or call it what you will. Obviously, the original It with Tim Curry was uh, a TV miniseries rather than a film. But um, but the new It movie I thought was uh, a fantastic film, and if not a horror film, I think it's got definitely got a, a subgenre here in terms of horror adventure. So a lot's been made this year uh, in the last couple of years. Sorry, of things like Stranger Things, which uh, deal heavily in nostalgia and. Uh, Stranger Things definitely has that a lot of a lot of those tropes of eighties misty-eyed Steven Spielberg of ET kids on BMXs definitely a lot of Stephen King uh, elements there as well with you know the Stand by Me or whatever or, or indeed it itself 
kids on bikes going around the local town and uh, trying to, you know, banding together, trying to solve mysteries, whatever it might be. And uh, the It film this year really, really surprised me. I thought it was going to be something uh, relatively cheap and and shoddy. And I I was absolutely um, pleasantly surprised that it was an incredibly well-made adventure film rather than even even a horror film necessarily um so yeah that's definitely one of uh one of my picks of the year but my absolute favorite film of the year uh was the florida project and i i won't dwell too much on it because of course we did um touch upon it on on a recent uh podcast but it came out of nowhere i wasn't expecting it it wasn't on my radar whatsoever and um and as I mentioned on the previous podcast, it's this uh, great little indie film about a, a group of uh, or family, I should say. It's a single mother and her little daughter who live in uh, a motel right outside Disneyland. And it's this it's this definite juxtaposition of the extreme wealth of America and, of course, the extreme poverty. has a fantastic turn from William Defoe as the guy that runs the motel and looks out for all the families that live there right on the barely above the breadline, uh, if you could say that. Um, But what I like about it more than anything else in the world is the fact that it's told it's a it's a dark, dark film which deals with terrible, terrible things of people living in extreme poverty. But it's told through the eyes of children and it's all it's the children that live within this motel who are witness to what's going on around them. But of course, as we all know, when you're a kid, things go over your head. You're not necessarily aware of what your parents are up to or what's being discussed, or what's being talked about. You're just dealing with your reality in your own way. And uh, the performances of the kids in the film are fantastic, very natural, definitely got a documentary feel to it. Um, in fact, we, I was in the pub recently with um, a friend of mine who'd uh, watched the film purely based on the podcast that we did recently, Fletch, on the Florida Project, and uh, they, they really fell in love with it. So um, I'd highly recommend it. And uh, I'm going to be keeping an eye on uh, Sean Baker and I'm going to be going back and watching some of his previous films as well because I haven't seen Tangerine which of course uh, as we mentioned on the previous podcast was famously filmed on an iPhone uh, but looks great the Florida Project itself not filmed on an iPhone I hasten to add but looks utterly uh, fantastic uh, you know the motels that these guys are staying in uh, are on the extreme cheap end of the scale but because they're in florida because they're next door to disneyland they have zany names like future world or whatever and they are painted in the most uh, garish colors to try and appeal to uh, any hapless tourists who happen to be stopping by and the film looks absolutely beautiful like you uh, alluded on earlier as well fetch with the uh, lost city of zed it's a lot of it's about atmosphere and for me uh, the Florida Project not only had something to say about the human condition, not only had something to say about uh, the huge colossal divides that we have in our society now between rich and poor, was not o- not only was it a wonderful social commentary and a great character study between a mother and a daughter, um, but also it was a film that had a fantastic sense of atmosphere and a sense of place and a sense of geography that uh, many films don't have. And I could... F- feel the humidity of the Florida heat throughout the film uh, just as much as I could feel what the kids were feeling not least right at the end when there's an incredibly emotional conclusion when life maybe does suddenly come crashing down on the children of the film uh, so yeah one one hell of a film Florida Project is my is my absolute pick of the year 
with a close runner-up being Paddington 2. Uh, and I didn't want to talk about that too much. I didn't know if you'd seen Paddington 2 yet, Fletch. I know that you're a big fan of the first one. Um, so from horror films to uh, a lovely indie film, right the way back to Paddington 2, uh, which uh, was maybe one of the comedic highlights of the year for me, not least because I got to see Hugh Grant hamming it up to the extreme as uh, as a real baddie. And I mean I mean that in the literal sense baddie i i I, he's a true baddie in this film hugh grant sending up himself as well because he's uh playing an actor in the film uh who thinks a lot of himself uh and uh, there's my favorite moment i think is when they enter hugh grant's uh home in the film uh because they're snooping on him they're trying to find out what 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 they can uh what he's up to and um he's got a lot of pictures of himself up in frames throughout his his uh his uh front room and uh, it's all pictures of him from Notting Hill and uh, Four Weddings and things like that, which I, <laughs> I thought was a great gag. But Paddington 2 is a film, much like the first film, is about um, about being inclusive. And uh, it's about London being a wonderfully multicultural and diverse place. And yes, uh, it's um, London through very, very rose-tinted spectacles. It looks incredibly colourful and gorgeous and wonderful. And uh, everyone is friendly to each other and everyone is happy. But my God, if uh, if it isn't something that we all want to aspire to. Uh, and uh, Paddington 2, I think, one of my other highlights of the year. So it's a close runner-up to the Florida Project. I want to get along to it. Um, I was just watching Mighty Boosh last night with James Oak. We came oh, back having had a few yes. points yeah, and stuck on, which episodes was it? Um, one with uh, cameos from the robots in disguise because Noel Fielding was dating one of them at the time. Yeah. And then this morning we watched the one with the horrors and Sammy the Crab and the girls are in it again just in the uh-huh. front row in another kind of a cameo. And Paul King, of who directed all of the Mighty Boosh, is behind Paddington, mm-hmm. both films, and Bunny and the Bull. And Simon Farnaby, friend of Mighty Boosh, currently on Horrible Histories and cameoed in Mindhorn, he co-wrote Paddington. And uh, there's so many threads moving at once, but um, this incredibly fecund scene, which if we trace it all the way about 20 years, came out of Baby Cow and Steve Coogan, and even farther than that is the day-to-day, but sure, there's a, sure. a, a great scene around Coogan in 97 on I'm Alan Partridge, working with Armando Iannucci on Time Trumpet and Chris Morris in Jam and then Nathan Barley. And one thread of that has uh, gone with Edgar Wright and made the Cornettos trilogy, uh, another thread is uh, Paul King working on Paddington. That's exciting too. And uh, Steve Oram, Alice Lowe's, uh, Julian Barrett doing their own independent projects like Prevenge, which was a very good film this year. Not in, not among my most favourites, but one that I'll be checking out again and again. We've already mentioned on the uh, on the Facebook page that it, Film 4 now have the rights. It's going to be in, cir- in circulation on Film 4. I'm so excited to witness this era of British independent-minded cinema. Maybe mm-hmm. not independent, but certainly creatively independent and independent-minded. And going back to The Mighty Boosh, uh, Velcro and Fuzzy Felt. Yes. Um, and <laughs> yes. making stuff, isn't it? It's all sticky yeah, back yeah, plastic. Yeah. That's the feeling that you get. And it's exciting when when a helmer like Paul King moves from that low-tech approach to because Paddington is... If you think about it, um, you don't even, probably, and if it's done successfully, you don't consider it while watching. I didn't with the first, but he's CG. Paddington isn't real. Of course, kids, he he is real. And, uh, <laughs> but when, when cast on, he couldn't play himself in the film, and so in the film they, uh, they reproduce it with computer graphics. But that's, in, that's an incredible job. 
Yeah. And it's seamless, the movement from what is uh, what always feels essentially like scissors, sellotape, cardboard, some egg boxes, mm. whatever's lying around the house, you know, fairy liquid bottles and <laughs> lemonade plastic. Um, from that in the Bunny and, Bunny and the Bull and Mighty Boosh to Paddington, what a wonderful progression. And they've still using the people they've shot up with over the last 15 years. I adore it. And I, I do hope to see it. If not, I suppose it'll have to be on film four. But I'm I, I'm glad as well that Hugh Grant came into their orbit. Fulham fan Hugh Grant, a proper movie star, and yet the laziest bastard. I think we'd really get on with him because it's so clear to me, and in interviews as well, that he sees acting as his day job, mm. and that's that. If you look at his filmography, there's some years he doesn't even make a film. Mm. Hugh Grant doesn't well, make keeps, a film. He keeps saying that he's given it up, right? And I'm always surprised to see him back in some yeah. respects. And I, I like that in the same... Uh, I've got a growing appreciation for Schwarzenegger. I look at his career... I've looked over the last five years, since he came back, I've looked at his career anew. I don't think Arnie's a bad actor. Mm. I don't even necessarily think he's a limited actor. What I think is that at every stage of his life, he's been efficient in achieving success. Mm. He identified in the early 80s what audiences wanted from him, what the biggest audience would pay to see. They wanted him, at first they wanted him to be brawny and say very little. Then they wanted him as an action hero. And then into the 90s, he mixed comedy with that as well. Yeah. And all of that, yeah, yeah, yeah. every transition was successful. It's a shame that he hasn't done more dramatic stuff. In the same way that it's a shame that for a, almost his entire career, Jackie Chan feels he can't play baddies because his Hong Kong audience, his Chinese audience, won't tolerate it. I don't think it's something we can quite relate to if we have a a heel turn in our stars it's it's a selling point isn't it if anything where you know Zac Efron grows up Robert Pattinson grows up and Jackie Chan's never been able to do do that uh, I think Stallone wanted him for was it it might have been Demolition Man and Jackie said I can't do it my audience won't allow me to do that and I'm I adhere to my audience and Schwarzenegger was the same and I feel like Hugh Grant's the same He's always restricted himself essentially to romantic comedies, which is what he does well, and it, what he's—that's the arena in which he's incredibly commercial, and he does good work there. And I think that I see as he's moving into his late fifties and getting onto his sixties, I think he's just leaving his comfort zone slightly. I'm excited to see that. I don't think Paddington Two is a natural choice for him. I keep, he keeps saying he's he's retired. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, it's a bit like Sean Connery, right? Never say never again. <laughs> <laughs> Although Sean, Sean, the only two of the only ones that have retired, Sean Connery and Gene Hackman, mm. both retired almost exactly fifteen years ago. Do you remember what Gene Hackman's last film was? Oh God, yeah, I used to know that. It, it's um, oh, you're gonna have to remind me. It's it's a silly. You mentioned film. his co-star. Yeah, it is. You mentioned his co-star earlier. Oof. It's not something really crazy like Garfield 2 or something, is it? Like, No, it's it's not quite as bad as that. It's uh, Ray Romano and Welcome oh. to Moosepool. Welcome to so, what?
You've been listening to One Sensational Shot's Review of the Year Part 1. Part 2 drops next week, and if you'd like to get your revision in early, when we return later this month with the Electronic Labyrinth, we'll be studying James L. Brooks' As Good As It Gets and James Cameron's Titanic, both well-nominated at the Academy Awards of 1998 for the films of 1997, and both on their 20th anniversaries. If you can brave the winter wastes, you'd do worse if you're in the London area to check out The Driver by Walter Hill at the Prince Charles Cinema on January 15th. Immense influence on one of our films of the year, Baby Driver. At the Regent Street Cinema a couple of days later on January 18th, Julian Temple gives my life story all about Suggs, one of Luke's heroes. And a couple of days after that, Shock Caller, starring Nikolai Costa-Waldau, Johnny Berntal, and directed by Rick Roman War. 80s, 90s stuntman extraordinaire turned director. We've also got John Walters' Hairspray at the Prince Charles Cinema on January 21st. And on January 22nd, a prime slice of 90s pop culture, Reality Bites by Ben Stiller. Nationwide, please prioritise Brad's Status by Mike White and Hostiles by Scott Cooper. And very soon we've three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri to look forward to. And The Post by Spielberg. And for those who'd rather stay indoors and when it's two degrees outside, who could blame you? Wake in Fright will be on Film 4 in the wee small hours of January 13th, 14th. We'd also advise you check out Wanderlust by David Wayne on the 15th. On the 16th and 17th, a David O. Russell double bill, The Fighter, followed by Accidental Love, which we've mentioned in our reviews of the year, a film that was eventually disowned by David O. Russell, took about seven years to come out recut re-edited very unusual something of a curio and we'll be watching it for the first time then on the 18th we've dark man on film four and on january 18th up against that so you'll have to set your video tcm is showing peckinpah's cross of iron for latest updates please check our facebook and ch- check our twitter watch along with us we'd like to hear your opinions on the films that we judge the best of the year and those bubbling under We do hope yours was a Merry Christmas and that 2018 finds you hale and hearty, all the best for the year. To play us out a conversation between Luke and I about one of my favourite cinematic experiences of 2017, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Um, It's a Wonderful Life was one of the last films I saw this year. Went to the Regent Street Cinema with Thorpe. Mm-hmm. There's moments I can't not cry during that film. Usually, um... a lot of the score is uh, in my Christmas playlist as well, along with some of the st- along, along with some of the stuff from like the Charlie Brown Christmas special, and uh, along with the Pogues and other things. But yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, one of the things I enjoy about it as well is it's a Christmas film that's not entirely set at Christmas. It's just about life, and it's just about yeah, yeah. you know your importance to other people at the cinema. As soon as Clarence teleports, he's on the bridge. Then they're in the shack. That's it. It really slows down. It does slow and down a lot. But I do like all the gags, uh, the kind of fish-out-of-water gags and stuff, uh, with the angel not quite knowing how Earth works. And uh, I can't remember what he says. He, he's talking very nonchalantly about St. Peter and what he's doing up in heaven at the moment. And the guy in the shack who's uh, helping James Stewart dry himself off sort of go, looks like... This guy's wacko. You know, he kind of like looks yeah, at the yeah. screen. I, I enjoy all that stuff. It's fun. With Clarence's appearance, it does lose momentum quite seriously. Probably not for someone watching it for the first or second time, but this is maybe my eighth or ninth screening of it. Mm. Uh, and yeah, there's uh, five or ten minutes. But I think that's because everything before it has 
such impetus as we learn all about George Bailey. And the bits that get me are there's a perfect speech that he gives when Potter, on the occasion of the death of George's father, looks to take over the board of the Savings and Loan. Oh, yeah, yeah. And George gives an impromptu speech... He does. ...about what it means to the town, about all these people are asking for is two rooms and a bathtub, um, and they don't want to condemn themselves to a, a lifetime of squalor in one of Potter's shacks. <laughs> I almost stood up to applaud. I didn't, because... Nobody else did, and I didn't want to screw it up for others. But what he was talking about, and this is in 1946, was... Is that 80 years or 70 years? 70 years later was still so relevant when he mentions saving, saving for one of your slums, Potter. And until when? Until they're so old and broken down and toothless that they can barely work a job, mm. and their children have moved out and they're on their own and they should save until then for a house. Watching it on a cinema screen... I was enchanted by and so admirant of Jimmy Stewart's ability. Um, it's it's a monologue, mm. but he reels it off so naturally with little interruptions to his own monologue. Beautiful stuff. But the bit that the bit that makes me burst out in tears, and I had to bite on my hand not to. Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed have just got married. They're almost out of town. He's almost achieved his dream, and he's on his way to his honeymoon. There's a run on the bank. They rush back to the savings and yeah, loan. Yeah. Everyone wants their money. They don't know if they've got enough. And then she takes the honeymoon money and says, we can use this. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, the, the, the humanity of it, the altruism, and also the, the kind of respect I have then for his choice of wife and what a team they are, what a partnership they are, that she completely understands what he has to do in that moment. They surrender all of their... In that moment, they surrender all of their dreams for the betterment of a couple of hundred people. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful film to see at Christmas because one of the problems with Christmas, I think, is that for most people, unfortunately, Christmas rather um, threatens to intensify the crappy year they've had. There's very <laughs> few people... Well, the thing is, like, very few people are having out, out, outstanding years. Most people are having an OK year. And a lot of people, more people than we'd like, mm. have stuff to deal with over the course of 2017... They get to the end of it, and it's just a matter of, well, I really do need 10 days off or seven days off or yeah. even five days off. Yeah. Because this has been rubbish. That was me. And <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, it's either been incredibly busy or incredibly stressful, or the, all manner of sad things have occurred. And more often than not, Christmas is likely to intensify and compound those feelings than it is for somebody who's had a great year to think, ah, what a wonderful capper this is, and I can get drunk for a seven nights. And I've had a great a great year anyway. So, mm. you know, I don't even need this, but I'm going to have a wonderful time nevertheless. And um, I, It's a Wonderful Life is the kind of picture that connects you to humanity as you should do at Christmas. Mm. 